thing. And it's also the first time I got to meet Ryan's new person. So I don't know whether I'm giving sermon illustrations or marriage counseling today. This is kind of interesting. But I, the, what's really interesting to me is the topic. And as you look from your notes, we're looking at this issue of shipwrecked. And it fits real well with the same title of your vacation Bible school camp, a vacation Bible camp, which will also use the term shipwrecked. I don't know who made all this happen, but it's really kind of fun to think about it, which is going to take place in a couple weeks. Now, just to set the stage, just to, just to set the stage, you'll recognize that the issue of shipwrecks or sea stories, which this fits into, is kind of a weird thing for the Bible because most of the biblical lands are semi-arid at best and even desert-like. But what's fascinating is the prevalence of sea stories in the Bible. Can I remind you of two in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament? Of course, you know the first in the Old Testament is Noah and the flood, correct? Big sea story where God basically does a do-over and says life was so bad on the planet he created, he decided to have a sea story. And then, of course, you can't get away with looking at the one that's Jonah and the, if you're theologically astute, it's the great fish. But you see, I always learned it was Jonah and the whale. Do you remember the story? And God uses this sea story to reorient one of his guys to say, among other things, you got it all wrong, you got to do what I say. And when you do things the way I say, amazing things take place. Two Old Testament sea stories. Two New Testament sea stories. You remember Jesus, of course, goes to sleep on the back of the little boat, and the storm happens, and the disciples say to him, Jesus, don't you care? Of course, none of us have asked that question of Jesus. Well, maybe none of you have. I have. And Jesus gets up, and he speaks to the storm and to the winds, and he says, peace be still, and everything's fine. Great sea story. And the result is that the followers of Jesus say, who is this guy? Next story, my, probably my most favorite Jesus sea story. He's walking on the water. That would save me lots of laps in the pool if I could just walk on the water. You see how that works. And Peter has the temerity to say, Lord, if it's really you, let me come and walk, too. You remember the story. Sea stories. Sea stories are fascinating because they capture our imagination. And it's against this backdrop that we come to what I think is the penultimate conclusion of Luke's writing of the history of the early church. And it's always curious to me, and it's one of the questions that's kind of triggered my thinking, is that why does Luke conclude his history of the Euler Church with a sea story? He's writing about what God has done. He's got lots of data that he could use. And Luke is obviously with Paul during this happens. Why does he pick this sea story as the way to bring to conclusion the first chapter, so to speak? in God's work with early Christ followers. Well, I'm going to ask you to read along with me. And you'll recognize that this, like all sea stories, has three parts. The first is the storm. I'm reading Acts 27, verse 27 and following. Luke writes these words. On the 14th night, we, that is Luke and Paul and the rest of the folk, were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. 
when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said that, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. He broke it and began to eat, and they were all encouraged and ate some food to themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Scene one, the storm. Scene two, the shipwreck. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. At the same time, they untied the ropes that held the rudders, and they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Scene 3. Acts 28.1. Once, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer. For though he escaped the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. It's an amazing story. Amazing story. Lots of interesting things happen. And the question for me as a former lit guy is what in the world is Paul doing by including it here? 
And I've made the point that there are three kind of scenes to this shipwreck story. By the way, all shipwreck stories have these three scenes. Everything from Moby Dick to Jonah to whatever have three scenes. It's the before, the middle, and the after. And I'm suggesting that Paul seeds his narrative by helping his readers understand that they will feel or find themselves in similar scenes in life. In fact, I'm going to make the bold prediction that all of us find ourselves in one of these three scenes today. What are they? You can see it from your notes. The first scene is the storm. And Paul wants us to understand from his actions and from the actions that he takes with the people there how to manage the chaos periods of life. Second, there's the shipwreck scene. How will we survive the near-death experiences of life? This is what I call crisis management. And thirdly, there's the seashore scene. Where, among other things, how will we serve in the new normal that takes place after trauma has taken place? How will we act as representatives of a new kingdom and confront the existing powers of the places that we find ourselves? Uh, let me back into this just a tad by understanding some of the background issues here. Uh, understand that what Luke is trying to do is help his readers understand what Paul does when he faces these different events of life. You remember that Paul has appealed to Caesar, and as a result, he's now given the status of royal prisoner. All the resources of the Roman Empire are now at the hands of those who have charge of Paul to make sure he gets to Rome because he's a Roman citizen. Therefore, all the people who are on the ship are bound by virtue of the authority of the Roman Empire to make sure that Paul gets to do his appeal to Caesar. The other thing that's important to note is that the technology for sailing at that point it, it used what was called coastal navigation technology. In other words, the sailors tended to make their way from one point to another, always keeping the coast somewhat in, in view. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have celestial navigation techniques. What they did was they used what they knew as points along the way, either islands or whatever, to be able to make their way from Jerusalem to Rome. Hence the background here. And it's in the midst of them getting there that something overtakes them. A storm takes place. Now, know what Luke emphasizes. He first emphasizes that Paul encourages those on board based on a previously understood angelic message. We have not read about it, but in verses 21 and 20 to 26, Paul tells the folk, look, I had a dream, and an angel appeared to me in the dream saying, you're all going to make it. So Paul uses that vision that you're all going to make it to help them understand that in the midst of chaos, it's important to encourage not only yourself, but those around, don't give in. Paul relays this angelic message to help them understand that the ship would be saved. And the promise to stand trial implies the fact that everyone who is also on board would also make it as well. In times of chaos, be aware that God still, still sends messengers. 
In fact, you may be facing a chaotic situation in your life right now, and what may happen as I'm speaking, not necessarily because of me, but because of this interior monologue that's going on with the Spirit of God, he's saying, pay attention, listen up, don't give in. Life may be tough, don't give in. But then Paul does something even more amazing. He exhorts the folk in the boat by virtue of his personal example. And he says, not only don't give in, don't give up. And he takes bread and he recognizes that the people in the boat have not eaten for almost two weeks. They've probably been drinking some stuff just to keep going. And he's saying, no, don't give up, don't give in. And he takes some bread, he says, you need the energy. Because stress often deprives us of the very thing we need to do life. Thirdly, Paul expresses his thanks to God in view of them all. It's almost what we're going to do at the end of when I'm speaking. He takes bread, breaks it, offers it to God, gives thanks with all these pagans all around him. And he says, Thank God, give thanks, because there's somebody bigger than all of us who's in charge of the chaotic situations of life. And Paul, by virtue of his management of stress, gives a huge illustration to those people reading it saying, when life gets chaotic, don't move inward, move outward. <laughs> Begin to see how you can encourage those people who are around you. Why is this true? Well, I don't know about you, but I can tell you my life. When life gets stressful for me, the scope of my vision starts to narrow. And I begin to be involved in what's called navel gazing. Oh, woe is me. I'm the only one. You too? In the chaotic times of life, Instead of looking upward to God, looking around at the people who are with us, I start to only look at me. <laughs> and Paul's management of chaos is encouraging because he basically says encouragement comes from the messengers God sends. He, he says, look, you can exhort others by virtue of your own personal example. And you need to express thanks to God even in the midst of the chaos. You know, in some ways, it seems like coming to church when life is tough seems like the most idiotic thing to do. But it's precisely helpful because it focuses our attention off ourselves and into the things that are important. So... In my life recently, last several years, some of these chaotic situations are when chemotherapy is prescribed and you don't know what the outcome's gonna be. Or when you're taking care of a special needs kid that's just been born and you're dealing with parents and they don't know what the future looks like. Or when there are leadership transitions that surround you and you don't quite know what's gonna happen politically, theologically, ecclesiastically or when you're launching young adults into adulthood and you wonder, will they survive on their own or I'm gonna to have to take care of them for the rest of my life. These are the chaos times of life. And I wanna ask myself in your presence, and I'm asking you too, how do you manage chaos? 
How do you manage things when it looks like the rudder is not under your control anymore? Uh, let me give an illustration. A bunch of years ago, I was good friends with a guy named Chris Lake and basically worked with him to help his first wife negotiate several rounds of chemo and whatever, and ultimately she went home to be with God over a four-year period. Linda was a wonderful believer in Jesus. And the only thing I knew what to do with Chris was I would go down to Yale New Haven Hospital. And while I was at Yale, I would go up and see him, say whatever words I could say. And then I'd say, Chris, let's leave. We're, we're going to go to Subway. Because if you've been to Yale New Haven Hospital, you know, right out the front gate, half a block down, there's a dinky little subway station right underneath the parking garage. I didn't think I was doing anything. We just would eat our grinders together, and then we would work our way back up. A couple years ago, Chris mentioned, he says, you know, I want to let you know that when my first wife was dying, those times at Subway were the only times that I had contact with real life. <laughs> so much of my life was predicated on things like uh, blood type numbers and cancer treatment options and things like that. And you cared for me by helping me see there was a bigger world outside than the one of the chemo ward at Yale Hospital. Brothers and sisters, I'm talking now in group here. If you're running into someone who doesn't know where life is going, sometimes our point is like Paul, just to get them to eat something. Well, the chaos can't continue indefinitely. And what happens next is Luke describes this inevitable movement to crisis. The shipwreck takes place, verses 39 to 44. And what's fascinating here is that the true colors of both parties in this boat start to be revealed. And when the crisis moment happens, as someone said, crisis doesn't make the man, it reveals the man. How we deal with crisis in some ways reflects the kind of character that God's been wanting to build in our lives. And there are two ways folk typically deal with crisis. They either seek to control it or they give care in the midst of it. And they're typified by the two kinds of people that are involved in, the, in, in this ship. The soldiers, they want to control things. They want to kill the prisoners because they have a legal mandate that if they don't get the prisoners to where they're going, they're going to die. And the result at this point is they're saying, look, I've got to look out for me. I'm going to control what I can control, so therefore I'm going to go and cut the necks of all these prisoners that I'm responsible for because if I don't, it's my neck. And they seek to control the things that they can exhibit control over. The plan speaks to the fundamental desire to control things in the midst of chaos. And when we're in the midst of crisis in particular, we seek to latch on to anything that we can control. The centurion, of course, typifies another thing. And he basically says, no, 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 no. I've got a relationship with this guy, Paul. He's done good by me so far. And so far, what he's said is proven true. So therefore, I'm going to say to the rest of the people in my charge, don't kill anybody. We want to give care to them. We want to give a consideration to them. We want to care for others. And in the midst of the crisis events of life, understand, and I don't know which ones you may be facing or that you know of other people who are facing, the, the great tension is between care and control. 
If you haven't, you will experience a crisis event in life. There will be times when the choice will be, am I going to look out for me at the expense of everyone else? Or am I going to take care of the people in my boat? Uh, one of the authors I really like uh, and I would recommend to your reading is a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. If you want to write down your notes, Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's a believer in Jesus. I think so. Don't quote me, but I think he is. Malcolm Gladwell's from England, written a whole bunch of books. The most recent one is a series of uh, essays he's written called David and Goliath. And it's a fascinating read. And one of the things Gladwell makes as an observation is that during the Blitz in World War II in England, the folk who were devastated by it initially died. They, they died. But the folk who survived it ultimately experienced a sense of exhilaration. We got the worst Germany could throw at us, and we lived. <laughs> so the result was is that by enduring crisis in a good way ultimately resulted in a What's the best way I can put it? It resulted in a making of their resolve stronger. And God often allows crisis to come into our lives just so when it's concluded, we'll know that God was with us all along. You don't know it while you're in it. You only know it when it's completed. Which brings us, of course, to the third scene of Paul's shipwreck story. This is the seashore. They make it on land, all 276 of them. And what takes place is how does Paul and how does Luke want us to understand how to deal with the new normals of life afterwards? Uh, she gave me permission. I could say something about how lousy a, dad, uh, a husband you are, but then she took it back, Ryan. So I'm not going to say anything too bad right now, okay? But I got permission, you see, and all that stuff. But, you know, after the new normal, what does it look like? And if you want ammunition, Ryan, you're free to talk to my wife, and she'll give you a heck of a lot more about how I've treated her not very well either, you see. What takes place here, friends? on the seashore is a classic power encounter. I'm using the word deliberately. Whenever Christians come into a new situation where Jesus has not been proclaimed, there's an immediate encounter between the forces of those people who know Jesus and those who don't. So Paul lapses into his immediate response. He ends up serving. The islanders have built this fire because it's dank, cold, and dry, and they need something to dry off the people who have wandered on shore. And Paul seeks to help out. He gets some brush to help feed the fire. Note that he's not playing the pity party. He's not looking out for himself. He's looking to serve other people. And the new normal is Paul understands right away that he's got something he can do, even if it's picking up brushwood. And as it happens, a viper attaches itself to Paul's wrist, and the rest of the people immediately see as an omen. They say, oh man, he escaped the storm, but he's not going to escape the snake. And Paul just shakes it off, the viper dies in the fire, and he lives, because what God wants them to understand is that there's a greater power than the forces of nature at work on Malta right now. 
so that the opinion of the people flips from seeing someone who should have been killed because they thought he must be a murderer because why else would this have happened to now all of a sudden they say, my goodness gracious, the gods must be with him. He may be a god. Paul immediately cuts to the chase and says, no, that's not the reason I'm here. I'm not here just to preserve my own health, but I'm here to extend the health that God gives me to those around. So he heals Publius's father. He heals those folk who are sick on the island. And you understand the progression from his personal healing at the threat of the snake. Paul demonstrates the healing power that God wants to give to the people who live on that island. Why? The sign miracles that God gives in Acts are merely given to get attention of people so they will listen to the message of God's saving grace. The miracles that happen aren't given for their own reason. They're given to point people to something that's bigger than physical life and health. It's to help them understand that a greater authority is at work here. These signs are meant to get the attention of people who can't see spiritual reality so that all of a sudden they will hear carefully that there's a spiritual reality they can't see that they must do business with. Now let me back away, make a couple points, and then lead us to the point of why we're here this morning. Three big points. You'll recognize that Acts is more than just a series of events. Acts isn't written to help us understand just the history of the early church. But it's meant to help us appreciate that God's got a plan not for just the first century, but for the 21st century. And God's strategic plan deals with people of all cultures, all times, all places. Luke concludes by demonstrating this movement that moves not just from the home space of Jesus and his disciples, but even to a faraway place that they've never heard of called Malta. And from Malta, it's a quick hop, skip, and a jump that Luke drives over, and he gets to Rome itself. And the kingdom of God is not some local kingdom that just exists on Sunday morning in Willington, Connecticut. It exists all over the world. And all God's people will say, amen. And sometimes what happens when life gets chaotic, when crises occur, we forget what we're about. <laughs> we're about something that's bigger than our own personal well-being. Acts also highlights the role of minor players. You've got the Peters, you've got the Pauls, you've got the folk who speak, make big sermons. But what's fascinating is how Luke also looks at the minor players, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the Dorcases, the Ananias who takes life in his hands to go to Paul when he's blind, figuring he may be killed along the way, but he lays hands on Paul and ultimately he can see. Even this centurion who takes the risk of his own job to say, don't kill the sailors! Because I believe this guy. And what Luke wants us to know is that there are no small people, no small places in the kingdom of God. And even a place like Malta figures significantly in the kingdom expansion of the Christian church. Even a place like Willington, like Stores, like Connecticut, 
has an important place in God's continuing work. Don't you ever think that you're small potatoes in God's kingdom. Third, here's the most fascinating thing for me. The progression of the book of Acts moves from what Jesus' disciples know in terms of what they teach others who don't know. That's the first seven or eight or nine chapters. When you get to Cornelius, one of the things you find is that they don't know everything they think they know. And all of a sudden, God's doing a work in Cornelius' life that blows the socks off, or back then, the sandals off the people of the early church. See, when Cornelius comes on the scene, you find out that God's at work in people who aren't like us. And what he wants us to participate in his work, even though we don't think he should be doing it among people who are different than us. When you finally get to Malta and other places, even like Athens or Morris Hill, you find out that God's been at work in cultures long before you ever had a clue. And you learn things about the greatness of God's character in ways you would have never known. And the book of Acts becomes a primer to see how we can give what we know to the people around us, but be expected to be surprised by the fact that God's already there before we show up. So today, I don't know what your schedules look like in the next week. I know some of the things that will happen in my life. But one of the things I can anticipate is the fact that if I'm open to it, God will show up before I get there. And one of the hoots about being a Christ follower is to know that Christ leads us before we get there. As we've been talking about sea stories, in the back of my mind, there are a group of kids in Thailand in a cave. And I'm hoping they get out. Do you know that some of the, one of the kids in that cave is a compassion child? As a result of compassion giving food to this kid, his whole family has become believers in Jesus. And amidst the general Buddhist overlay of life in Thailand, there's a family that's praying to Jesus that their son will be rescued. And I'm praying with them. Why? Because God shows up in ways that are bigger than I can anticipate. Can I ask the question yourself, myself? You remember the scenes. The boats rising and falling. The storm is on the way. Chaos abounds. Are you going up and down in life right now? The suspense is constant. We're getting almost to a point of crisis. Do you realize that God wants to be with you in the crisis? Or maybe you've gone through crisis events and the new normal has approached and all of a sudden you're saying, boy, this doesn't look like what it used to be. Or as Dorothy said, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. The world that I live in now is very different than the world I lived in five years ago or 50 years ago. Can I ask myself and you all together, how are you with chaos management? Will you give up, give in, or will you give thanks? How are you with crisis management? 
When you see people in crisis, do you help them with the basic needs of life? Food, encouragement. How are you with confronting the powers that are against Jesus as being Lord of all? I want to go back a bit. As the Lord did in the middle of the chaos and crisis of his life, he did something that Paul does by analogy. In the midst of the chaos of Passover, he took bread. He took a cup and he gave thanks and distributed it to his followers. We do that Sunday by Sunday, not just as a ritual, but as a way to recalibrate what's important in our lives. <laughs> and amidst all the chaotic things that face us, and good Lord knows you probably have a whole lot more than I do, in the midst of the crises you face or you know other people are facing, in the midst of the new normal, where all of a sudden you're not sure what's right, wrong, indifferent, up, down, backward, or whatever, Jesus says, I got it under control, guys. As I give these symbols to you to take, they picture what I have already done that is a marker against what I'm going to do. And if I saved God's people once, I'm going to save them at the end of the age. As did our Lord during times of chaos, crisis, and confrontation. So we take this bread and this cup and say, oh Lord, I want to give thanks to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for the analogy, the way Paul took your words and applied them to his situation, his life, his world. As we take these elements, would you help us not to do them just ritualistically, but as a way to help us see what's really important Quite frankly, Lord, I don't know the chaotic things of the people in this room. I don't know how the crises of life will play out, either here or the folks' lives that these people represent. But I pray as a result you would allow us to be agents of service and healing to those we meet this week. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.